Chapter 22 Urza's Mitre How can you stand these collars? asked Tanos, tugging at the starched fiber around his neck. I can't, replied Urza. When I was a child, I hated any ceremony that forced me to dress up. I think it's one reason religion fell out of favor among the nobility. It was too uncomfortable to dress for. Both men wore stiff cotton shirts with even stiffer woolen jackets, accompanied by heavy woolen pants. Each garment was ironed with knife-edged folds. Leather boots, new and shined to an incandescent glow, were equally unwielding. Titanos, they felt more like lead weights than footwear. The ceremonial gear was mandated by the most august of ceremonies in which they were about to take part. Tanos wondered if they could just send the outfits and stay home themselves. Reflecting, Tanos thought the pair had gotten off lucky. There were costumes and ceremonial uniforms among the gentry that reminded him of a ship under full sail. So festooned were they with ribbons, banners, and medals. But Argaf had never had a lore high artificer and protector of realms before, nor a master scholar. As a result, both men were shielded from the worst of past pageantry. Tanos had always heard the Argivians were a dour, serious people. Even the way they treated such a celebration was further proof, he thought. Never had he seen so many people dead set on enjoying themselves. They were single-minded, even grim, in their pursuit of pleasure. The past month had shown that beyond a doubt. There had been celebrations beyond measure in Penrigan. First, a royal wedding between the young crown prince of Argive and the granddaughter of the redoubtable Lord of Corlys. Then, the official notice of abdication of the venerable, if weak, Argivian king in favor of the crown prince and his new bride. Then, there was the official recognition of the combined kingdoms of Argive and Corlys, though Corlys was effectively subsumed politically into Argive. And now came the final act, recognition of Urza as Lord High Artificer and protector of the realms of the combined kingdoms. The nobles of Argive were behind it all. They had been feuding with their crown for years. The king, now referred to as the Old King, advocated a policy of containment and appeasement of the desert tribes. That policy had been destroyed with Krug, along with whatever power the king still held. The nobles were behind the royal marriage, along with the merchants of Corlys. They were no doubt instrumental as well in convincing the Argivian king to relinquish his crown. Tanos knew for a fact that the nobles had pressed Urza to accept the scepter and mitre of the Lord Protector of the Realms. What Tanos did not understand is why Urza had accepted the position. When Tanos put the question to him, the artificer offered a weak excuse. At least it seemed weak to Tanos. In Yodia, said Urza, the warlord let me build devices but I had little control over their use and never sufficient resources to develop them properly, even as chief artificer. Now, as Lord Protector, I can control the use of my devices and will have full access to sufficient resources. I am not sure about the nature of that control, returned Tanos. From what I've seen, even leaders are driven by events and situations beyond their control. That includes the will of the masses. Already there are those who call to retake Yotia. That may well yet happen said Urza, but it will occur with a mechanized force, one filled with Avengers, mechanical soldiers, and the new Sentinels we're designing. It may happen before we have a chance to finish the work, said Tanos. In fact, this new position may bring you under new pressure to launch an attack. Urza ground his palms together slowly. At last, he shrugged. You may be right, my former student. Then why accept the mitre and scepter, demanded Tanos. I have another reason said Urza, and closed his mouth firmly. Tanos wanted to press Urza about what such a reason could be when the door to the room flew open. A small metal bird fluttered into the room, chased by young Harbin. The seven-year-old laughed and lunged at the small bird, which dodged his blows effortlessly 
and circled the room. Thanos whistled a short tune, and the bird came to a rest on the mantelpiece. The boy also quieted immediately, suddenly aware of the others in the room. Uncle Thanos, he said with a smile. Then his face turned stern. Father, I'm sorry for interrupting. Urza smiled gently and said, No interruption. He looked at the bird. One of yours? He asked Thanos. Thanos shrugged. A small distraction using some of the ideas we've been working with. It avoids the boy's blows because it detects the air movement in front of his hands, much as an insect would. He can catch it if he moves slowly, but I've never seen a boy who had that much patience. Urza nodded. Yodians have many souls, but at your core, you are still a toy maker. Lady Kayla, queen in exile of Yodia, had entered behind the boy, while a servant carrying her cloak remained outside. Harbin, you know better than to disturb your father in Thanos. Urza allowed himself another gentle smile, and said again, No interruption. On a day like this, it would be hard to get any real work done anyway. Come in, and let us toast our good fortune. Thanos turned to pick up an oversized elephant bottle of red wine, a gift of the nobles. Your guidance liked their wines blood red and furniture polished bitter. Urza fetched two goblets, one for each of the other adults, and his own chalice. The last had been Urza's own handiwork. He had converted the central pump that had worked the last of Tokasia's onulets, a beast now as mythological and argive as minotaurs and rocks. Thanos poured a small amount for himself and for Kayla, and a more generous helping for Urza. Urza raised his chalice in a toast. We have passed through the fire over the past few years, and that has tempered us. Now the fires grow hotter still, but we are stronger, and we are proof against the flame. To Argive and Coralis. To the memory of Yodia, said Kayla. To the new Lord High Artificer and Lord Protector of the Realms, said Tonos. To the new Chief Scholar, replied Urza, and the metal clanked between them. Urza drained his cup and said, we had best be moving along. If we are late, your guidance will make being late part of every ceremony from here until doomsday. Urza started for the door, then paused. He whistled a small tune, identical to the one Thanos had used minutes before. The mechanical bird unfurled its wings and sailed off the mantelpiece. Harbin swatted at it, but missed, and the bird fluttered around the room, dodging the young boy's best aimed shots. The ceremony itself was typical of all Argivian ceremonies. Thanos had thought he would not survive the wedding earlier in the month, but this was infinitely worse. For he and Urza were at the center of the activity. There was no chance to sneak out when you're on the podium with all eyes on you. The Great Hall had once been a cathedral to a god, now forgotten out of fashion. It was packed with all manner of Argivian nobles, clad in finery that swelled in forms to twice their size. In addition, the incense used in the hall was overwhelmed by the clashing odors of perfume worn by the Argivian women, and some of the men. Thanos wondered if he could afford to sneeze in his tight outfit, and his eyes watered. The Argivians bothered Thanos, and the nobles worst of all. Owing to the former apprentice's Yodian origin, most tended to treat him like some rustic relative. He always felt like he was out of place in Krug, a boy from the coastal provinces in the big city. At least though in Krug, he was among Yodians. Many of the Argivians seemed to assume that all Yodians had trouble with the language. They spoke slowly and loudly to him. Worse still were those Argivians who acted as if he were still no more than Urza's apprentice. Occasionally, they did not address him at all in the Lord High Artificer's presence as if he were no more than a hanger-on, a dog's body, a servant to Urza. 
even when the artificer made sure to mention Taunus' inventions, such as the Triskelion, a mobile fortification, the eyes of the nobles glazed over, and Taunus could almost hear their ears clicking off. No, thought Taunus. Worst of all were the stiff collars. He reached for his, but halted his fingers in time. It would be just like a rural bumpkin to pull at his neckline in the middle of a ceremony. The ritual was interminable. There was a presentation of honors, a recognition of foreign delegations, a recognition of important nobles that was effectively a roll call for the entire cathedral, a platitude by the Chamberlain of Argive that was longer than most sermons. This was followed by a listing of good things that had happened of late, which were, truly or otherwise, ascribed to the efforts of Urza and his faithful assistant, Taunos. The tawny-haired man's position on the podium gave him a chance to sweep the crowd with his eyes and pick out faces. Kayla and Harbin in the front row. She was nearly wilted in her gown, but was still game, while the boy had surrendered to boredom a half hour back and was now kicking the sides of the pew in a desultory fashion. The apprentices were led by Rickshaw the schoolmaster, the senior students Rendell and Samuel at his side. Charamon was in full military harness and looking almost comfortable in his dress uniform. There were others, Argivian noblewomen in full regalia and young courtiers vying with them for flashiness. Corlysian merchant lords, more restrained, but still bedecked in the most sumptuous of fashions. There were dwarven diplomats from the Sardian Mountains, a dour group of diminutive people who made the Argivians look positively festive and the Corlysians even-handed. Their mountains held much of the resources that Urza needed, but they were willing to trade their metals and stones for gold, which Urza considered a minor metal of little real value in the battlefield. There were Yodians present, dressed colorfully, but simply. There were refugees who had fled to Argive after the fall and represented some of the most powerful families in the region, yet next to the Argivians, they seemed like poor relations. There were also others of whose identity Taunus was unsure. There were a band of fur-wearing barbarians from Malpiri, and a group of priests, black-robed savants with mechanical devices hung around their necks. Gixians, Taunus reminded himself, from a monastery far to the northwest. Urza had received an offer from them to aid in his studies, but Taunus found them too fanatical in their devotion to the machines themselves. They treated even the ornithopters as if they were living creatures. It made Taunus nervous, and he avoided them, as did most of the rest of the populace who had no time for gods of any stripe. The Chamberlain's invocation ground to a close, and he was replaced by the Lord of Corlys, whose voice was slightly more pleasant, but who seemed intent on showing everyone that her nation could be just as long-winded as the Argivians. She spoke of recent events, of the erecting of the defense towers along the borders of both Corlys and Argive, and of the continual ornithopter patrols that kept them safe from the Falaji devils. It was more than just Urza's devices that kept them safe for the moment, Taunus thought. Word had reached Penrigan that Mishra had plundered most of Yodia and drained Zegon as well, and was looking for new supply sources. Apparently, the attempts to fold Sarinth, far to the west, into the Falaji Empire had not gone well, and a huge force had settled there to besiege the principal cities. Instead of gaining much-needed resources, Mishra had succeeded in opening another front. Should he continue in this fashion, Urza's brother would soon surround himself with enemies. Of course, the situation was not lost on the Argivian nobles, nor on the Corlysian merchants, who wanted to reopen their precious trade routes. Now was the time, they said, to press the advantage. Now was the time to retake Yodia. Now was the time to put Mishra in his place. Urza had surprised Tanos with his response to the noble demands. In Yodia, he retreated to his ornery and let others do the talking and planning. Now he met with the nobles and the merchant wards whenever possible and never shirked from showing them some new device or implementation. They, in turn, 
had opened their vaults to him, allowing him to access power stones, land, and other resources needed to build. Thanos thought he knew Urza's plan. The Artificer would continue to build his Avengers, Ornithopters, Sentinels, and soldiers until he had more than any dragon engine could best. Only then would he move against his brother. Thanos hoped Urza would have time to carry out his plan. Given the enthusiasm of the Argivians and the greed of the Corlysians, he was not sure. The Lord of Corlys finally surrendered the podium and his young majesty presented the titles. Urza knelt, a feat in itself, considering the stiffness of his costume, and the young king placed the Lord High Artificer's mitre on Urza's head. Then, he laid the scepter of the Protector of the Realms in Urza's hands. The crowd burst into applause as Urza rose and recognized their cheers. They were quieter for Thanos, but only slightly. He received the heavy velvet robes, lengthened to cover his large frame, of the chief scholar. He knelt as well, and the king placed a golden circlet on his head. Even kneeling, Thanos was almost as tall as the king and had to bow forward to prevent the Argivian from having to reach up. Then the benediction and Thanos swore he saw the entire audience shudder to a man as the Chamberlain remounted the podium and launched into a rousing screed against the Falaji devils. That was what was missing, Thanos thought. There were no Falaji present, at least none who would announce their heritage. The Chamberlain declared Urza to be Lord Protector of all the lands not held by the Falaji and their allies. In other words, all lands not under the rulership of Mishra. Finally, the ceremony was over, and the people filed out for a ceremonial banquet which would be dominated by even more lengthy speeches. Every merchant and noble, with at least some claim to the title, would rise and deliver his own thoughts on the matter. Thanos couldn't wait. Back in his chambers, Urza smiled and pulled the mitre from his head. It was a heavy thing, and Thanos had wondered if the older man would fall over from the weight. Urza hefted the mitre, clearly delighted. Finally, Thanos said, I have never seen you this cheerful when the people praised you in Krug. Is it the fact that they are your own countrymen that makes you smile? Urza looked up, puzzled for a moment. Then he smiled broadly. You think that is it? That I have become a vain old popinjay, thriving on the adulation of the crowds? Look into my hat, my former student, and see the truth of the matter. Taunus moved over and looked over the brim of the upturned mitre. Gemstones were sewn into the lining of the tall hat. That was why it was so heavy. No, not gemstones. Thanos realized. Power stones, pure and unflawed. They were more than had been in the chest Urza had shown him five years ago. Thanos looked at Urza, and the Lord Protector beamed a warm smile. That was why he had put up with all the pomp and trappings of the ceremony, the chief scholar realized. That was why he endured the speeches and court of the nobles, and why, while claiming modesty, had accepted the post of Lord High Artificer. All to gain more power. All to gain more resources. Urza left the mitre in Thanos' hands and went to fetch his chalice before the pair left for the interminable banquet. Thanos shook his head. His former master had not changed at all. His devices were still at the center of his universe. Thanos did not know if that knowledge made him feel better or worse.